0: Greetings, welcome to another edition of Witnesses of the King, where we're going through the book of Acts and we're taking a very close look at some of the great things that we have learned in the book of Acts. Today we're in Acts chapter 17, and in Acts chapter 17 we're going to find the Apostle Paul engaging the culture. He's going to be engaging the culture. In other words, he's going to have opportunity to speak Uh, to to some of the top thinkers in the city of Athens, a kind of the center of art and philosophy and things of the ancient world. And so we get to see uh, and walk along with Paul as he has this great opportunity. So turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Acts chapter 17, and we'll get started. Let's take a look at this. It says, now Paul, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... And saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Well, let's begin then with, with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for bringing us together for this time to study your word. I pray that you would show us the relevance of what Paul has accomplished here that we may understand the principles under which he was operating and Lord, that we can indeed in the spirit of Do the same as we meet people, as we engage the culture. And Lord, I pray that you'll work magnificently through your word to equip us for this wonderful work of sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. We pray that you are known and glorified through this preaching of your word today. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, let's look at a couple things here. First of all, what we want to do is we want to kind of get a profile of of what we're doing here. And what we're doing here is we're talking about the city of Athens as we come to Acts chapter 17. Most of us have heard of the city of Athens because the city of Athens exists to this day. And the places described here in the book of Acts, one can still visit. We know where this place was that the Areopagus met on Mars Hill. And so we can go there and we can act like Paul and we can recite what he said here uh, if we wish to, but the city of Athens, at the time that Paul came to it, was really a a culture somewhat in decline. Most historians put the peak of culture and, and Athens' greatest times before the time of christ and so a couple hundred years before Athens was the place to be, and it was the uh the great and growing centre of of commerce and many other things in the world. Now, at the time that Paul came, it was still the centre. Of commerce, or the center of culture and education and art and architecture were all greatly influenced by the work done there, all around the world, the Roman world that was at the time. And their past, however, had been even more glorious, and uh, they were much more engaged in commerce and, and in the economy and in politics, and they produced a great number of influential uh, philosophers and scientists. But now they were somewhat declining. They were no longer searching for truth or for fact. But as we saw there from uh, chapter 17, verse 21, they were really kind of searching for novelty. They spent their time looking for what's new. What is today? What are people talking about today? And so we see this commentary on the way that things were. And looking back, on the city of Athens and the things that took place there, we have to admire it. We have to admire that they had many great advances in philosophy, in mathematics, in science. Much of what we're able to accomplish today is from discoveries and things that were understood from that period of time and in that place. They made major contributions to art and the thinking of art and and realism specifically of art. And many of their pieces of art and and architecture and things that they accomplished are still stunning to this very day. But what we find there in Athens, as Paul comes to it, is we find a city lacking a soul. And this is mostly because of its empty religion. This empty religion is shown by uh, verse 16, in which Paul comes in and he sees that the place is given over to idolatry. He says this, and I've got even the wrong chapter this time. So (laughs) he says this in uh, chapter 17, verse 16, the commentary as he comes in, he was waiting for them. His spirit was provoked because he saw that the city was full of idols. King James Version here says that it was wholly given to idolatry. Wholly given to idolatry. And so this is a, a, a city just absolutely given over to this kind of way of thinking. And there was a, a a comedian at the time, somebody commenting on the culture of the time, and they said regarding the city of Athens that it was easier to find a god than a man in that city. And they their religion was mostly focused on art and amusement, and it's it's shown in its myths that they had concerning their various gods, gods that you have heard of, the Greek gods, and their names transitioned, but the stories were much the same as Rome came through and took over. And when we read some of those myths, and when we understand those myths, it it really reads like bad television. There's all this rivalry and violence and ambition among the gods, and the gods themselves had no moral power or authority. Because of this, they were acting like poorly behaved human beings. And all this religion was not helpful. It had not produced prosperity. It had not produced morality. It had not produced peace. They didn't even have for themselves a worldview that adequately explained reality. But even worse than all that, what they were believing was simply not true, and therefore it was futile and had no power behind it. Now, here's something that we need to understand, though, about world religions and about the religions and the gods of the, uh, ...of the Greeks and the others who lived at the time. It's easy to say that their religions didn't have any power behind them... ...but we do have to understand that supernaturally, spiritually... There were powers behind these things. It's not that there was nothing to their religion, it's that there was something false to them. Spiritual entities and things that influenced and led men astray by their own desires to create these false religions and, uh, and convince them that there is some kind of alternative truth. To the universe. And so this is uh, truly a spiritual thing. And there was definitely demonic and satanic influence, and in, as there is in every false religion of the world. Well, they not only had problems with a, a failing religion, an empty religion, they had failing philosophy. As their religions failed to fulfill them, They began to pursue knowledge through their own human abilities and to pursue wisdom through philosophy. Now, a few hundred years prior to Paul showing up here, there were names like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, men that were wrestling with the truth, wrestling with logic, trying to find the meaning of life and how one ought to live, and this sparked a movement of very organized thought. But by the time Paul comes along, it had degraded, and had been taken to, as their philosophies, uh, devoid of any real light or truth, had been taken to their logical conclusions, which is vanity. As we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, one thing after another from a worldly perspective, when disconnected from God, when we follow it to its logical end, when we get everything out of it we can, we ultimately have to pronounce it empty, vanity, meaningless. And this is indeed what we have when Paul shows up. You'll notice in verse 18 it mentions by name two of these schools of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they were two very different and rival schools of thought. There were other schools of thought at the time, but these seemed to be the the primary rivals. And they had developed already every kind of argument against one another. They had established themselves, this, uh, this two-party system of philosophy, if you will, and having worked it out for some great time, uh, they were more or less at a stalemate. And so we look in verse 21, that's why we find they're always looking for what's new, what's next. Uh, they're bored with where they are, they're, they're comfortable maybe where they are, but nevertheless, they still reveal that something's missing because they're still looking for it. The Epicureans were all about enjoying life, uh, although with some balance. Uh, But ultimately, that kind of philosophy just leads to hedonism. And we know hedonism, that is just the fulfillment of every bodily or, or mental desire, ultimately leaves us empty because there's a law of diminishing returns with these things. Just like taking a drug that has less and less effect over time. More is required and the user is left feeling empty. So it is with hedonism, with just indulging your... Uh, your own uh, desires, your own to trying to quench your own urges and they didn't believe in gods. the Epicureans didn't, which is how they could justify just do what feels good basically the Stoics. Uh, rather than enjoy life, their kind of look at it was endure life, but be guided by your own reason and self-sufficiency. Don't let external things or your emotions get in the way of you doing what you believe to be right and what you believe to be your path. They believed in a God, a very vague God, a pantheistic style God, a, a God that was the world and everything in it. But they ultimately believed that all power was in your own hands, that the, the power and fulfillment in life was up to oneself. Interestingly, the first two leaders of the Stoic philosophy school committed suicide. And so it revealed itself to be, like the other philosophies have been, something empty. Well, so what is Paul's message as Paul enters into this world? What does he have to say to it? This is something that, that can be very helpful to us and help us understand um, what what's going on here by understanding what Paul says to them. And the first thing I want to point out and remind you of is that Paul's spirit was provoked. This is like when we read in the Gospels that Jesus, it says, was moved with com- compassion Paul is provoked in his spirit. Something moves him to action. He he is just moved inside to do something about this. So what does he do? Well, at first, he dialogues with the people. And this word uh, can be uh, translated as reasoned, as it is here in the ESV. He reasoned in the synagogues uh, with the Jews and devout persons. And he also reasoned in the marketplace with whoever happened to be there. And so this idea of reasoning, this is where we get the word dialogue, and that means this is a back and forth. He is speaking, and he is asking questions, and he is answering questions. And so this would be a back and forth between two people, and this is something that uh, is becoming less and less familiar in our society today, but we'll talk more about that maybe later. Uh, Notice that Paul didn't start a riot, he didn't turn over tables, he didn't come merely condemning everything that he saw, although he was provoked by it. He was very concerned about what he saw. He was having a dialogue. Now, the content of that dialogue is right there. Some people will say, look, Paul has abandoned the gospel and he's simply trying to reason with people. They'll get hung up on this word reasoning. But no, Paul is proclaiming the gospel because if we look at verse 18, understand he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What does he want to say? He seems to be preaching foreign divinities because, and the reason they say that, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so in this, yes, Paul was preaching. He wasn't trying to find middle ground. He was stating his place. He was clarifying it for all to know. Then Paul goes to the Areopagus. And in the Areopagus, he has opportunity then to speak with more and he went to the areopagus the areopagus was a men a group of about 30 men in athens who were overseeing the religion and the education in the city and of course had even empire wide kind of uh influence because of this and they saw to it and and they they took it among themselves to investigate any kind of new idea new doctrine is the word that's there and that's why they ask Paul to present them on Mars Hill. Uh, Paul's not on trial here. They're not charging him with anything. They're sincerely curious about what he is saying and how he's saying it. And, and so they're interested in what this new thing is. And in verses 22 to 31, we have his speech summarized. And I want to go through this bit by bit with him because this is his testimony, and we have these words summarized. Now, I'm one that believes that when we get to the book of Acts, that the majority of the discourses here, the things that are said, are summarized to be helpful with us Because this only takes a minute or so uh, to read, and I think they gave Paul a lot longer than a minute. It would be normal and probably standard operating. Give him 20, 30 minutes to explain what he's talking about. But here's how... Our our friend Luke, guided by the Holy Spirit, summarizes what he has to say. And he begins with being respectful. He says, men of Athens, he addresses them formally in a way. And he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And this seems to be a compliment. Now, this is an ambiguous term. And in some of your translations, you'll see that it is translated as superstitious. Well, it could mean superstitious, but it could also mean that in a positive way as you're you're religious, you're devoted, you're pious. Uh, So this word was a bit ambiguous, and I don't think Paul sought to insult them at the very beginning of what he was saying. That would definitely come later as he showed the futility of the things that they believed. And so he comes here, and he begins by being respectful, and then he finds common ground. And this is interesting. Look in verse 23. He says, I walked through your city. I, I see you're very religious. I found all this stuff. And one of them had an inscription to the unknown God. So they they had so many gods that they even realized themselves. See, do you understand by having a, a monument, an inscription, dedicating something to an unknown God, This is very clear testimony that they understand themselves that they don't know it all, that they don't have all the answers. They have this thing to an unknown God, and that is where Paul grabs hold, and that's what he locks into. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, he found a gap in their knowledge, their philosophy, their religion, and he is going to show how the gospel fills that gap, and ultimately how the gospel is greater than The whole system is thought. And this is interesting. It's to support their knowledge of God in verse 28. He actually uses some of their own words, uh, not against them, but in this discussion, he uses their own words. You notice in verse 28, it shows these as quotes. And that's because we have identified these coming from ancient Greek writings. He's clearly introducing a quote because he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And those are identifiable quotes from Greek literature of the time. And so Paul brings this in and he says, look, you yourselves testify that God is greater than us because in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, he's our sustainer, he's our creator, and, and we are indeed his offspring. And he reasons from that and he says, so we ought not to think that God is something less than us because if he is our creator, then he is something greater. Now, some criticize Paul's approach, and they say that he's reasoning God philosophically or logically rather than from the scripture. But I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. I'm going to debunk that right now by walking you through this, starting in verse 24. You'll notice that what everything that Paul says is true and biblical doctrine. Just because he's not quoting chapter and verse does not mean he's not being biblical. He is using biblical doctrine. And, and summarizing the things of the Bible can be very helpful and can be adequate for sharing the truth, for sharing the Gospels. We saw the results that Paul had that some believed. I was speaking with a man the other day, and this man was recounting to me what God was doing uh, in in this testimony that he gave to a particular individual who had a a terminal illness. And in witnessing to this man, this man, um, you know, he asked him about the Lord. Are are you going to go be with him? Are you going to know him uh, when you pass? And this man uh, appealed to his past and said, I I think I'm too bad a sinner. I'm too far gone. I've committed, you know, I've, I've just gone too far and I don't think I can be saved. And all my friend said was, well, do you remember the thief on the cross? And that's fascinating because this man lived a life apart from God. And yet he knew as soon as my friend said, do you remember the thief on the cross? He knew and understood what he was saying. And he got it immediately. He goes, yeah, he was a bad guy, wasn't he? And, and immediately understood just having heard this as a child. See, God will use just a fragment of scriptural truth to spark something within a human being. And uh, and Lord willing, this man will be converted. But this was a turning point, certainly, in his understanding of the gospel, was just a few words to point to the scriptures and say, yeah, but, you know, there's this. And it pointed him to it. So here's Paul in verses 24 through 30 here, really summarizing biblical truths to these men in order to fit it in, in order to make it fit and and not appeal simply to Scripture. Because, let's face it, Paul didn't have the New Testament yet. Now, he had the personal testimony of Jesus, the testimony of all the other eyewitnesses. He had the entire Old Testament, which he argued from about uh, Jesus being the Christ. But look in verse 24. He's a creator God. He made the earth. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So he's not going to live in temples. He's not going to be served by human hands in verse 25. He he gives life and everything to us. Okay. And in verse 26, he made from one person all humanity. And he sovereignly determines their times and places, their boundaries and, and where they're going to live. And then they have this goal built in that they might seek and find the Lord. So God made us, he's our sovereign creator, to have fellowship with us. He didn't just make us because he was bored one day and he's basically uninterested in us. Like the Greek gods, he made us that we might know him. And look at verse 28 here. Here's where he finds a common ground. And he's basically saying and agreeing with some of their own writings, look, God, if there's this true God, he's over and around and above and greater than all things. And we ourselves are even his created offspring. And so these are reasonable and biblical conclusions from these truths. Every system of thought has some vein of truth in it, some common ground we can find, something we can join with our hearers and say, yes, this is true. And let me explain it further. Let me add to this. Let me put this in perspective or show you how this actually contradicts this other thing in your belief system that's not as true. And so we ought to know That God, according to Paul here, God is utterly different. He's not something that's going to be served by human hands as if he needs anything. Even our art and even our greatest imagination are not going to reach to the level of God. Now Paul takes them, having established these truths and having agreed with them on some of these points, verse 30, he takes them to new ground. He said, look, things are different now. God's overlooked The times of ignorance. In other words, our inability and our failure to know God in our human ways is no longer going to be an excuse. Our finality, that is, our finiteness of being limited in our abilities and knowledge, are no longer going to be an excuse in comprehending God. Many people will just discard the gospel and say, no, 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 God's too great to be known. Well, while it, while that is true, that God is too great to be fully known and understood, we will never be able to put him entirely in a box to examine him. He would cease being God. But he can be known because he has made it possible to be known. And so Paul says, look, We're not going to have that excuse anymore because now he's commanding everyone to repent. He's commanding us to repent because now he is appointed a judge and this judge has been proved by being raised from the dead. And there Paul proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where it broke down for most. This is when it kind of fell apart, that he starts talking about the resurrection. And when they heard of the resurrection, uh, some mocked. And that's probably enough to kind of, okay, well, I think we've heard enough from Paul, you know, as as some of them begin to mock or whatever. Um, But if we look at the response, many were curious to hear more. We'll hear you more on this. And some of them believed and joined up with them, including one of the members of the Areopagus. In other words, one of these philosophy elites joined in with him, Dionysius, named after one of the Greek gods. So the question that we have for this, you know, he did all this, he testified. I want to take you back to the summary of of, uh, what he said here in the bullet points. He testified these things to them. What does that have to do with, with us. Well, let's bring it into our present context. And for some of you watching internationally, uh, as I go through this exercise with the United States of America, you'll be able to relate these things to your own nation as well. You'll see these same principles acting out, these same principles in truth. What we have in the United States of America, much like the city of Athens, is we have a culture in decline. And there are undeniable trends and simple facts that we can state to show this is true, that crime is increasing, that the inefficiency of our government and our industry and everything is increasing, that we have decreasing innovation, and we have failing education as we slip behind the rest of the world by every kind of mark that they have concerning education, concerning technology, and other things. Now, I am not one of these people that's going to look upon any con- any particular United States of the past and say, that was our high time, that was ideal, that was perfect, because no human institution like a nation or a company or a, a church or a place is going to achieve perfection, is going to achieve an ideal. I'm not under the ilu- illusion that things were actually really any better, But that these particular markers are showing that we are indeed in a general decline. And I'm simply drawing parallels here to what we're seeing in this, what we saw in the city of Athens. From a worldly perspective, the United States used to be first in every category. In its wealth, in its ability to innovate, in its technology, uh, in its a prosperity in its peace, and and even to this day, since our founding, we other than the Civil War, we've had no foreign aggression on our soil, and yeah, we've had terrorist acts and things like that, but never a full scale invasion, never a threat to our sovereignty from outside. But nevertheless, it is not what it used to be, and most people recognize that. Part of the reason for this is. Empty religion, and many will point to the decline of the United States and suggest that it even began with religion, that the decline came as people became less and less faithful. This is the trend of human beings. As we become comfortable in our peace and prosperity, faith gets relegated to Sundays. It becomes irrelevant, and we see this. This is human nature. This is something that we see in The uh, Bible very clearly that when things are good, people don't feel like they need God. They begin to trust in themselves and what they've accomplished. They begin to fail to see all that God has given to them. We saw this in the book of Judges probably most clearly. As Israel came under uh, threat from enemies, they would cry out to God and there would be a bit of a revival and God would send a deliverer and take them out of the trouble And deliver them to a time of peace and prosperity. And once they found themselves in a time of peace and prosperity again. They would fall into idolatry. They would forget the God that had rescued them just a few decades before. And this is indeed part of human nature and something we see. We've seen it in our own nation. During times of war. Times of great poverty or natural disasters. All of a sudden everybody wants to pray. Uh, And we'll remember that September 11th, 2001, after the attack on the Twin Towers in New York City, that there was a great surge in church attendance. But that surge waned after some months, and some churches went right back where they used to be. Most churches went right back where they used to be. Uh, So empty religion is partially to blame uh, for the decline of any nation. Failing philosophy is also something important as the philosophies of man, as the endeavors of man. uh, Here we have in the United States a a free enterprise system, a free market system that was established uh, from the very beginning. The idea was being let's just create opportunity for everyone. And when there was ample opportunity for each and every single human being in the United States, we found we still had poverty. We still had injustice. We still had difficulties. Why? Because the system is imperfect? No, because human beings are imperfect. Then comes this great promise of science and technology that comes, and we begin to find many answers to things, and we begin to unhitch ourselves from superstition and from religion and things like that. We even began to redefine our origins based on so-called science. And the whole world was, and especially the United States, feeling like now we can move on from religion into an age of scientific enlightenment, But when we look at that philosophy and we look at the results of that movement, things are no better. Things are still empty. People are still in despair. There is still poverty. There is still injustice. All these things still exist. Science did not deliver what we had hoped it would. So we turn then to big government to solve our problems. We have the leverage of a large number of people and this great organizational power that we have in our governing systems. And therefore we can organize everyone. We can regulate everyone. We can redistribute. We can make sure no one's left behind we can establish this new order of things and we can even blame it on religion and we can reconstruct society from the top down based on rational thinking, based upon science and based upon this, this agreed thing that, that we are all and should be equal. Well, how is that going for us? Now uh, we have now a very bloated government and we've solved none of the problems that the government and, and the self, uh, Self-interested politicians promised to solve. All those things still exist. And in fact, they exist in every governing uh, authority on the planet and throughout history. That these problems have always existed regardless of what kind of market is in place, regardless of what kind of governing authority is in place, that these problems continue to exist. Human philosophy has failed us we still have crime and despair and poverty and hatred and division now our present secular society interestingly does nothing our fa- our present philosophies completely fail to explain the ideals of the heart. And here is the opening that our message might have to modern day. Paul saw in their opening, you admit there's a God you don't know. Our opening is, is this in secular society, you can't explain morality. You don't have a, a, an objective standard for morality. All you have is your opinion or, or the opinion of the masses or ev- everything else. And all those can be proven to have failed in the past. And so our present society doesn't have in it a place to explain or to achieve true peace or contentment. It cannot explain love, and it cannot purify love, and it cannot explain eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says something very interesting. It says, uh, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. As much as we try to have a secular society explain everything through naturalistic causes and everything else, we never address this issue in man's philosophy alone. What is it about eternity in our hearts? Why do we all have this sense that there's something more than just this life? Every society, everywhere, their philosophical, their religious systems, they fail to address what is in our hearts. And they fail to change the human heart. So here is our guide. This is the gap, the opening in every worldview. Every worldview lacks gospel truth. So in our context today, what would be our message? Well, it would be very similar. First of all, I'd say this, we need to get provoked about this. We need to look around and understand how the worldly philosophies are utterly failing people a suicide rate higher than it's ever been. The great despair that goes around and the great negativity that exists and the great unwillingness to dialogue about things in our nation and in our culture today is something that we need to get provoked about. People need the gospel truth for all those reasons, but most importantly for the reason they will perish without it eternally. We need to get provoked. And we need to engage in dialogue. We need to engage in dialogue beginning with the church, beginning with those who call themselves Christians. And we need to dialogue about. What is our purpose of being Christian? What does God have for us to do? Are we achieving the Great Commission? Are we taking forth these great truths? What is our truth? How do we understand the Bible? What do we understand from the Bible? We need to begin it there, and then we need to be in the marketplace about these things, and we need to be speaking with our neighbors and our friends and relatives and strangers that we meet, among whom we often have the most success, and we need to be discussing things what do you believe about these things how does that belief serve you? Have you considered this thing here's here's what we understand and here's what God has done and how God has proven it and so we need to take also opportunities to speak now I don't say uh, that most of us are ever going to have an Areopagus size opportunity I mean here Paul has the opportunity to speak to these elite philosophers these people kind of in control kind of in charge and even had one of them believe. We're not going to always have that kind of opportunity, but whatever opportunity we have, we need to jump on it like Paul did. He absolutely grabbed hold of the opportunity so that he could make the most of it. And when we get that opportunity, we want to testify. We want to be respectful and not arguing and not sarcastic with people. It's so easy today to be sarcastic. And I'm I'm expressing this to you as someone who has the kind of sense of humor that is just uh, Biting with sarcasm, and and it's something I love to pour salt in someone's uh, failure in their philosophy and things like that. And I have to resist that urge, and I have to be respectful. This is what Peter commanded. He says, always be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have in you, only with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Then we find common ground. And we can find common ground in a number of ways. And I want to show you some of the things that we find here. Uh, First of all, all human beings have some kind of basis of morality. All human beings will look at something and call it wrong. But in our present society, we have nowhere to assign the origin of morality. And we have no objective standard that is no neutral ground to appeal to, to say, this is the source of morality. Now it's up to us to interpret it. We have it in a Christian worldview. It's called God, and he has given it through his word. He is our standard of morality. And all other philosophical uh, things, depart apart from a biblical God, lacks that. People are concerned about social issues right now, and you'll see this. This is good common ground to find. People are concerned about injustice, and you can say, well, what is justice, and where does that concept come from, and, and you know, well, what if there's a God, and, and isn't he just? He's the source of this feeling of, of justice, and, and what if his justice was turned upon us? How are we doing in these things? And so we find people are very concerned about social issues, very concerned about social justice these days, and these are a place where we can agree and say, yes, I'm concerned about that too. Here's what the Bible suggests is the source of that problem, and here's what the solution is. People in our time are also very superstitious, and that can be a touch point for us. In other words, they believe particular things to a religious fervor. They believe Uh, Many people believe evolutionary further, and we need to show the gap in their data. There's no data to suggest that we have evolved from lesser life forms. There's no observation of any life form becoming a different kind of life form. There's no observation of something that's dead becoming something alive. There's no experiments to back any of this up. It is all strictly conjecture, and therefore those who subscribe to it are Superstitious. They're believing a myth. Now, it's a myth that's been very fanciful, fancifully constructed by people that sound very intelligent and seem to be able to make a case, and they've got a bunch of letters after their name. But nevertheless, it is our modern myth of our origins. That's a common ground. That's a place that we can attach to, and we can say, you know, that's an interesting idea, but what about morality and love and, and these things? You know, are, are we to suggest these developed from a rock, or are we to suggest there's something more? I'm going to explain what that is, and that's our opportunity. And we have much common ground with the human problem from being disconnected from that which makes us distinctly human. From that which makes us image bearers of God. These are the things that are truly important. These are the things that are on the hearts of many people and if we will but dialogue, if we will but ask them about their beliefs and the origin of their beliefs and then discuss with them the opportunities of the gospel, we will gain much ground and much opportunity. We can reason with them about the nature of God And if we go through what Paul said here, we can say, yes, there's a divine creator. He's not served by man-made rules or religion. He's above and beyond all those things. He's a creator. He's utterly in control. And he doesn't really need anything for us, but yet he has made us. And therefore, he has an elective interest in us. He made us that we might know him, and he has taken steps to make himself known. He's intervened. He has sent Jesus Christ, his son, and now he commands us, everyone, everywhere, to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. And he's proven all these things by raising him from the dead. Now, some will fault Paul and they'll say, when Paul preached this, he did not convict his audience of sin. You know, in other words, normally when we witness to somebody, we'll take them through the law and we'll show them their need for the gospel because unless the need can be shown, unless the illness can be shown, the physician will not be sought. And so we will show them their condition of their heart by taking them through the law. Have you ever lied? Have you ever taken anything that wasn't your own? Have you ever uh, had lust in your heart that was inappropriate? And, And we'll bring people through these things and they'll say, Paul totally failed to do that. No, it's right there. It's in verse 31. That he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Judge them for what? For whether or not they know him. Because this is what he clearly said, this, here's here's God and in him we live and move and have our being. He's so great. He's provided all this. He's our creator and he intended for us to know him and now he has made a revelation which makes that possible. If we fail this, we will be judged for it. And so this is our message to proclaim then the resurrection of Christ, to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And this is where it gets really interesting. I want to take you to this for just a moment. On this resurrection of Christ, we have a message that we can agree with every assessment of things that the world deems is wrong. And in the gospel, we can present the solution. And we want to make a note here that all human systems have failed to produce what God put in our hearts as ideal. That every, every human system, every governing authority, every place and every time, people have looked at it with despair and said, this is not what ought to be. But we've been given the ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. Look what it says here in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus quoted this. And this is the, the ministry that we continue as his body The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus closed the book at that moment because now is the time of the good news. The day of vengeance of our God, the very next phrase there, you can see at the bottom of the screen there, that very next phrase, that's coming later. That's upon his return. Right now is the good news. That Indeed, human beings can be set free, that we indeed can, the broken brokenhearted can be bound, bound up and, and repaired and healed. And this is the good news that we bring. This is the fulfillment of every inclination toward every good ever conceived in the heart, that what the gospel presents then is the fulfillment to every idea we have about how things ought to be. Now, why did they stop at the resurrection? Did you find that interesting that it's all of a sudden it's right there at the resurrection that they say when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked and all of a sudden it falls apart. I'll tell you why they stopped at the resurrection, because then it got over their heads. And I don't mean over their heads that they couldn't understand it. It got over their heads that, hey, if you're talking about being resurrected from dead, if you're talking about defeating death, then my whole worldly philosophy and my science and my ideals and, and my technologies and my, my techniques and things, they're all irrelevant because you're talking about defeating death itself. And that's often when it will break down for people, oh no, now nah, you're just getting crazy. And the reason why they're saying it is it's not because they think you're crazy. It's now that because they think there's something greater than them that they will have to answer to. And this is what we see in the resurrection of the dead. Because now all of a sudden, oh, you're talking about resurrection from the dead. Now you've just made poverty and war and, and all these things seem silly, seem small in comparison to solving the one problem that has come to each and every human being that's ever lived. And that is death. That's why they stopped there. See, no matter the situation. The gospel is greater. No matter how together a human being seems to have it, the gospel offers something greater. No human being can take up their life again. But God can give it. And he will raise his own. And that he has made a promise. And so we'll have mixed results when we do this, and when we testify, and when we proclaim these great things. Some will mock, but some will believe And this is the great promise. Some of those people joined Paul, and a church began in Athens. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good as to reveal these things to us. Lord, these are things too wonderful for us. But Lord, in your great grace, you have condescended. You have come down to our level to explain, to present, to fulfill, and to enable these things. And Lord, we are stunned at what you have done. For you have shed such grace upon us that, Lord, we rejoice in it. And I pray, Lord, that you'll make these things known, that you'll get us utterance, and that you'll minister mightily to us. We thank you and we praise you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thank you for joining me, and I ask you to contact us with your feedback or your questions or your concerns. You can find out more about us at whitesrun.org. And you can email me at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And we will take the time to answer those questions that you might have. We will dialogue with you. It will go back and forth. And and we want, want to know about you and where you're listening and what your life situation is. And then you can find out more about the gospel and about what the Bible says about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God bless you. Have yourself a wonderful time.